6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Proverbs, chapters 25 through 29. We are in the book of Proverbs, and tonight we're going to explore chapters 25 through 29. And... uh, there we go. Now, just by way of warm-up and review since we've been away for a while, Proverbs is God's book on how to wise up and live. This is a practical book on lifestyles, personal guidance. This isn't about abstract theology. This isn't about some profound uh, cosmological insights. There are some things scattered through the book, but it's primarily focusing on a practical guidebook on living. And that's far beyond just keeping laws. You know, so many of us have this mentality, gee, if you keep keeping the laws is our task, if we just keep the laws, everything's going to be fine. No, it's far more than that. This book focuses on living a, an aggressively dynamic life. It's not a book about hiding from the world. It's not a book, it's not a call to a monastic order. This is a, a book about making it work. Proper and improper attitudes are focused on. Conduct and characteristics are referred to in very succinct, penetrating ways. Very, uh, a great deal of experience in very short sentences. Little punchy epithets. It uses a rifle, not a shotgun, at getting at these issues. And uh, there are some caveats I'll throw out in front. This is experience. It's not mere theological dogma. Much of this is just practical wisdom from our friend Solomon. And I take the point of view that the whole book was written by Solomon. There are some that feel certain parts of it may have been contributed by others. We're going to challenge that in our next session in a very surprising way. And uh, now, some of these assertions don't seem to work in our particular world. That may be a reflection on just how wicked our world has become. A certain amount of cynicism seems to be, uh, need to be seasoned through some of these. They are generalizations, and of course, they each have their exceptions. And both the general statements and the exceptions need to be weighed and balanced You can quibble with a number of these things because you can conceive of places where maybe they don't fit. Okay. But they are, after all, generalizations. And uh, now, many of these things are broader than our lifetime. Many of the, the rights, the wrongs that need to be made right will extend into a theological realm. In other words, over the long run, not necessarily day by day. And, uh, in other words, the justice, the ultimate justice comes in the world to come, in some respects. Okay. Having said all that, and recognizing that these 
do codify the wisdom of Solomon in, in, in his heyday. Let's also remember that this is part of Holy Scripture. And because it is, the Scripture tells us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. A glib phrase. What do you mean by inspiration of God? The word in the Greek actually means God-breathed. Our view of the Scripture in general, but it also includes the book of Proverbs, is that God controlled what is expressed. It may have been expressed by different writers at different times, but we now discover through computer analysis and other things, the astonishing things that it is an integrated message even to the structures that lie underneath the text. God breathed. That means, well, it means a lot of things. We'll let that go. That was just by way of review. One of the questions that we each need to focus on as we approach life itself is what is your most important stewardship? You constantly have competing demands on ourselves, family versus our career, that sort of thing. What is your most important stewardship? Is it your career? That's certainly important. That determines your economic contribution and rewards and so forth. Is it your family? Wives are nudging their husbands. Yes, it's the family more than the career. Yeah. Is it your spouse? I'm going to suggest it's your heart. Your most important stewardship is your heart. Governing, managing what you put, place your heart on, what you place your focus on. The proverb says, keep thy heart with all diligence. There's that word, diligence. For out of it are the issues of life. Everything else in your life will derive from keep, by keeping your heart with diligence. Well, last time we were in chapters 10 through 24, we're now going to shift into uh, the next section, which is Proverbs 25 through 29. The previous ones were set in order by Solomon in some direct way. This group appears to have been somewhat organized and edited by the men of Hezekiah many years later, codifying his... He wrote 3,000 of them according to the scripture. We have only a sampling of these. But the ones we're going to explore tonight are those that were pulled together, compiled, if you will, during the days of Hezekiah. Or putting it another way, nominally during the time of, of uh, Isaiah and so forth. And so let's just, let's just jump in. Chapter 25 through 29. These are also Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied out. We didn't make that up. We just summarized it from the text. There it is, okay? But I love verse 2. It's a very key verse for me in my personal career. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings, I might say the duty of kings, is to search out a matter. The reason this is so important to me, I constantly have people come up to, that quibble with the idea that God may have hidden messages in the text. Are there hidden messages in the text? Absolutely. All kinds. There are all kinds of books written about the so-called Bible codes. And when they, call, when they say Bible codes, they're usually referring denotatively to a specific kind of code called the equidistant letter sequences. Even those rather controversial codes, I believe there are many cases where they're very valid and very illuminating and they glorify Jesus Christ. Most of the people writing in this area have no background in cryptography and much of what you see is sensationalized, 
promotional, contrived, and, and counterproductive. That doesn't mean that isn't a fruitful area if done properly. But more importantly, that's just one kind of encryption. There are dozens of different kinds of encryptions embedded underneath the text. And as you get into those, there are discoveries being made that are exciting, that uh, strengthen your faith in the Bible and illuminate details that otherwise might be missed. But I love this verse, too, of Proverbs 25, because it, it, it is the glory of God to conceal a thing. If you could, by serious study, exhaust the biblical text, that would deny its divine authority. If it's, if it's the Word of God, you'd expect it to be inexhaustible. You can never plumb its depth to the end. There'll always be surprises. It is the glory of God to conceal things. He hides things there. Why? To give the kings, the leaders, a challenge to search things out. So I see this as a call to diligence in the text. Now that doesn't mean that anything that's concealed is essential because the gospel of Christ is so direct, so clear, expressed virtually on every page from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. So you can understand God's plan of salvation. You can understand the reality of Jesus Christ without getting into these nooks and crannies. And yet, there are treasures hidden behind every nook and cranny. And we're going to discover one of those in the next session, in chapter 30. I'll give you a little assignment when we finish tonight. What that verse says is the same thing that Jesus said in a sense. Jesus himself said, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. They are they which testify of me. Jesus said that. The scriptures, the Old Testament. You'll find Jesus Christ on every page. As you know, I'm a very I'm a devotee of the book of Genesis. I love the book of Genesis for lots of reasons. But my favorite commentary in the book of Genesis is not uh, uh, Henry Morris or some of the scientific ones. I'm very interested in that, but the, my favorite commentary in the book of Genesis is Arthur W. Pink, who doesn't deal much with those things, but he really brings out the typology how Jesus Christ is on every page of the book of Genesis. Some people say he even sees types when they're not there, but that's okay. We, we enjoy him. We enjoy Arthur Ping. Paul said much the same thing. He said, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Those are all challenges to diligence with the text, but let's move on. Proverbs 5, verse 3. The heaven for height and the earth for depth and the heart of kings is unsearchable. That doesn't mean you can't search it. It means you can never search it completely, that you can never get to... You'll never exhaust it. You'll never exhaust it. A fascinating example is the book of John. It's considered one of the most direct, simple of the Gospels. You've got a new believer, give him the Gospel of John. They say it's so shallow a child can wade in it, but it's so deep an elephant can, can wade in it. In other words... It looks simple, but every time you go through the Gospel of John, you'll discover a level of depth that you didn't know was there before. It's a wonderful study. Continuing, take away the dross from the silver, and there shall come forth a vessel for the finer. We sing the song, Refiner's Fire. It captures the same idea. Take away the dross from the silver, and there shall come forth a vessel for the finer. How is God, this is an answer to a question you can think about, this week, but how is God 
taking away the dross in your life. If he loves you, he's doing that. If you're comfortable not getting stretched, something's wrong. God works with every one of us. Every one of us has some dross that needs to be, some baggage we should leave behind. Take away the wicked from before the king and his throne shall be established in righteousness. You know, it's interesting. Every one of us really needs to have the right kinds of advisors around us. I've had an executive career before my Christian professional career when I was uh, for 30 years in the corporate boardrooms and I had some, some many wins and some losses. But most of that, most of the wins were because I had, by the grace of God, been surrounded by the right kinds of advisors. I watched ministries on their ups and their downs and you can see many, you can see the bones of many wrecked careers on the landscape by people that didn't have good advisors around them, people to watch their backsides, people, but in many counselors there's wisdom we've seen several times in the book of Proverbs. Take away the wicked from before the king and his throne shall be established in righteousness. How tragic it is, but we're all influenced by people. Let's hope that we surround ourselves with people that influences properly. That's basically the gist of that. Put not forth thyself in the presence of the king and stand not in the place of great men. And say, put not forth. He's speaking, putting yourself on display, uh, promotion and so forth. This is the same thing that Jesus talked about in Luke 14. Verses 7 through 10, you'll discover pretty much the same kind of idea. Don't aspire to the front places, but let them call you, having taken a more humble position first. For better it is that they, it be said unto thee, Come up hither, than thou shouldest be put lower in the presence of the prince whom thine eyes have seen. In other words, how much better it is to sit in the back row and have them call you to come up to the staff table rather than to try to push yourself into the core group only to find yourself a little embarrassed. Hey, by the way, this is reserved. You, you know, you get the picture. Okay, pretty straightforward stuff. You know, it's, but this even has a broader implication, I think, is that we're always on display. I could go on some examples from the Naval Academy as a plebe. I was, had a number of cases I was startled how little subtle things are noticed by the upper class. You're always on display, when you don't, even when you, don't, uh, when you may not realize it. And uh, uh, they spot right away people who are self-promoters, and they also develop a very quiet but profound respect for those that are, that are um, where they belong to be, and so on. And we skip all that. Let's go on. Verse 8, Go not forth hastily to strive lest thou know not what to do in the end thereof when thy neighbor hath put thee to shame. Again in Luke 14, Jesus makes similar comments like this. He says, when a king is ready to go forth to war, he ought to sit down and see whether he's able to gain the victory. If he sees that he can't carry on the war for it, then he better send an ambassador to make a peace treaty with the enemy. Pretty straightforward advice. But that's pretty much the same idea here. Go not forth hastily to strive. Unless you know. Before you get in an argument, think carefully what end is it that you're after? Is it just pride or is there a practical result you're trying to negotiate? 
And can you win it? And uh, otherwise, you'll be put to shame. And so pretty straightforward stuff. Debate thy cause with thy neighbor himself. And discover not a secret to another, lest he that heareth it put thee to shame, and thine infamy, infamy turn not away. This is probably an echo in some respects in the Old Testament of what gets codified in Matthew 18. There is a procedure there to resolve disputes that should be the mechanism within the body of Christ. Unfortunately, it's not. The landscape is littered here, too, with examples of ministries who fail to allow a person to be confronted by his accusers, ministries that are run on hearsay. And uh, uh, it's tragic. I, I, there, there are over a dozen cases I could recount where good people have been disenfranchised and their careers wrecked because those, the ministries involved were really um, run by hearsay rather than any kind of due process in, in, in writing uh, uh, apparent abuses. And uh, anyway, we'll move on. This is one of these gems of a simile. In fact, it's often used as an example of a simile. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. Don't you feel good? Isn't that, a, isn't that a, an elegant one-sentence summary? A word fitly spoken. We can all think of examples of the wrong words spoken, and you quickly discover that words are like toothpaste out of a tube. You can't put it back. You, know? you can't retract what you said inadvertently. The contrast to that are these occasions when just the right word is said just the right way at just the right time. Precious things. Precious things. Here it says, it's like apples of gold. That may sound strange to us because we're used to red delicious or whatever, except what this may be referring to are oranges, but let's, <laughs> I don't want to break the metaphor. I think it's elegant. As an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold, so is a wise reprover upon an obedient ear. You know, it's interesting as an echo of the word fitly spoken is this whole idea of somebody wisely reproving you. That's a very delicate thing, a very essential thing, a very precious thing, is to have someone you trust say it in a tactful, diplomatic way, give you a correction. Chuck, your mouthwash ain't making it. No, that's not what I really meant. Okay. A wise reprover on an obedient ear. There's two parts to this communication, a wise reprover, somebody that's in a position of trust, a position, and takes and uses that constructively. But it's also important on the receiver to have an obedient ear, someone who's open to correction. Open to correction. As the cold of snow in the time of harvest, so is a faithful messenger to them that send him. Now, most of us can't relate to this, but harvest is usually in a hot time. And apparently it was a practice of many in the heat of the summer to go up to Mount Hermon and bring some snow down as a refreshment. That's what some commentators assume may be the echo here. As the cold of snow in the time of harvest, so is a faithful messenger to them that send him, for he refresheth the soul of his masters. 
how comforting it is to send somebody on an errand and he, and he executes that faithfully. Now, in this case, we're talking about a messenger. In our society, that's a, perhaps a little different, but we still have people who run errands for us. When they do it faithfully, that's a comfort not to be uh, taken for granted. Whoso boasteth himself of a false gift is like clouds and wind without rain. I think we've all had experiences with people who talk a good game, make great promises, but you quickly discover that their apparent resume is just a, a, a tissue of lies. Um, Boats of themselves of a false gift is like clouds and wind without rain. This is an idiom that Jude draws upon when he speaks about apostates. In the book of Jude, he speaks of clouds without water, fruit trees without fruit, raging waves of the sea foaming out their own shame. By long forbearing is a prince persuaded, and a soft tongue breaketh the bone. This is really a, a call for patience and perseverance in communication. Pretty straightforward stuff, I think. Let's move on. Hast thou found honey? Eat so much as is sufficient for thee, lest thou be filled therewith and vomit it. And uh, in the Old Testament, honey illustrates natural sweetness. Natural sweetness. But even there, don't overdo it, right? Withdraw thy foot from thy neighbor's house, lest he be weary of thee, and so hate thee. In other words, don't wear out your welcome in a single place. I think these don't really require a lot of expositional insight. Right? Okay. A man that beareth false witness against his neighbor is a maul and a sword and a sharp arrow. Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a broken tooth and a foot out of joint. You know, these... These are graphic idioms. These are sentences that rattle when you shake them. They're, they're tangible, aren't they? Confidence in an unfaithful man. He that beareth false witness. As he that taketh away a garment in cold weather, and as vinegar upon nitre, so is he that singeth songs to a heavy heart. There are times when a joyous song is not in the right place. So is he that singeth songs in a heavy heart. You know any of those kinds of people? Niter? Well, that's a good question. Who, what is niter? Anyone tell me what niter is? I, did, I forgot to look that up. Huh? Soda. Yeah, soda. Nitrate, soda, whatever. Put vinegar on it, foams, and makes a mess, right? That's what I assume it means. But I forgot to, I forgot to check that out. Okay. If thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. If he be thirsty, give him water to drink. For thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head, and the Lord shall reward thee. Does that sound like the Sermon on the Mount? Echoes part of that, doesn't it? And the heaping coals of fire upon his head. That's something Paul mentions in Romans 12, verse 20. I've always been amused by that because you're sort of, there, 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 there is a, a, a cynic, a cynic could say that there's sort of a, a uh, uh, 
oxymoron there or self-contradiction because you're being kind to him in the hopes that you're heaping a coals of fire on his head. You know, it, it, but still, uh, it's consistent with what, what, what uh, Jesus talked about. If, if thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. If he be thirsty, give him water. This you're talking about your enemy, not your friend here. For thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head, and the Lord shall reward thee. And I assume that the Lord will reward thee if your motives are right, not the cynical way I just expressed it. The north wind driveth away rain. So doth an angry countenance, a backbiting tongue. It is better to dwell in the corner of the housetop than with a brawling woman and in a white house. <laughs> well, Solomon ought to know, right? 700 wives and 300 concubines. And if I understand biology correctly, menstrual cycles tend to synchronize among groups. Is that right? Can you imagine them with PMS at the same time? This is where I should work in the quip. You know the difference between a woman with PMS and a terrorist? And the answer, of course, is that you can negotiate with a terrorist, right? Actually, though, in verse 24, I don't know anything about that. As I've mentioned before, I don't know anything about that, personally. As cold waters to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. A righteous man falling down before the wicked is as a troubled fountain and a corrupt spring. You and I, probably, unless you're a camper or a, a, a hunter or whatever, can't appreciate the frustration of encountering a corrupt spring. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Proverbs. Download the K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the iTunes or Android app store, or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.